1: What is technology? Hang on. I need to ask that question from beneath the weight of the historical import of its cosmic bigness. What is technology? God I hate that question. I've spent a goodly portion of my life avoiding it. If it comes up on campus, I walk out of the room. What is technology? So much ink spilled over that one, and it's gotten us pretty close to nothing. Though I do like Paul Nightingale's essay, What is technology? Six definitions and two pathologies. That's a good one. What is technology? Historian David Edgerton has argued that we should just stop using the word altogether unless the people we are studying are using it, and then we can quote them. When it comes to historical writing, I think that's the way to go. Otherwise, we just end up importing our assumptions into other eras. But for a variety of reasons, I don't find I can ditch the word technology in many areas of my working life. And you could say for better or worse, but mostly it's for the worse. We do know that answers to the question, what is technology, can go very wrong, though often when they do, it's not because of thinking has gone off the rails, it's because of unthinking it's because people aren't thinking at all they're just making assumptions built on popular opinions and ways of talking this is what people in my line of work find for example in undergraduate classrooms when initially students talk as if technology is reducible to smartphones and apps and the internet and stuff like that that is unthinking inaction i'm interested in tools I'm interested in how human and non-human animals refashion their environments to achieve their ends. I love the episode we did with archeologist Kate Freeman on the archeology span of innovation. We should have more archeologists on here. I want to think about the material realities of ancient peoples. I also want to think about why the pace of material change on the planet picked up like 150 or 200 years ago. Hint, it's called capitalism. Capitalism, But don't let anyone tell you that technology is changing faster than it ever has before. That is complete bullshit. But if we're going to do a historical or sociological study of a technology, once it has slipped into the background, once it has become what scholars call everyday or ordinary or mundane, we have lots of words for this, how do we study things? once they are no longer getting so much attention. Well, today's guest, Andrew Simon, a senior lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at Dartmouth College, has a neat set of answers for us in his book, Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. Media of the Masses tracks how tape players and cassettes became interwoven with Egyptian culture beginning in the 1970s. The book is cool for several reasons. On the simplest level, it's just full of neat stories, but most of all, I appreciate it for the way it uses multiple kinds of sources to approach different aspects of what may first appear to be a non-glamorous technology. Though, as we'll see, the tape players were markers of social class, so there was initially a kind of glamor to them. I think Professor Simon gives us a lot to chew on when it comes to approaching everyday technologies and how to find them in historical records. I had a lot of fun chatting with Andrew. I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening to him. Hey, get excited! so much for taking the time to talk to me today,
0: man. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, I appreciate it.
1: So the book is really neat in a a number of ways and I can't wait to get into it with you. When you explain to people what it's about, what do you say and what were you trying to do with it?
0: Yeah, great question. So I was trying to tell the surprising story of a familiar technology. So looking at a technology that we often consider to be very ordinary in nature and exploring its extraordinary impact. So rather than looking at the invention of cassette technology, something that has been documented pretty extensively, is well known, I wanted to consider what happens once cassette technology moves from being this idea Uh to being an actual object. What happens when it leaves the walls of its workshop in Europe and it ends up in a place like Egypt?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, How did you come to write this book?
0: Yeah, so it's been a journey, as is the case with many books. So I think one of the initial inspirations happened in 2011. So a year after, or within a matter of weeks after graduating from undergrad in North Carolina, uh, I flew to Cairo for this intensive Arabic fellowship uh, it happened to overlap with the Egyptian revolution mm-hmm. in 2011. I was taking classes uh, in Tahrir Square, which is the epicenter of those million-person mass demonstrations. Ended up missing a lot of class. No way. I <laughs> Atted, can't believe it. Attended those protests, <laughs> those 18 days leading up to the downfall of this dictator who had been in power for 30 years. Yeah. And those events really opened uh, my ears to the importance of sound, pop hmm. culture, and mass media. And so then yeah. I left Egypt for grad school in a much less revolutionary place, Ithaca, New York, yeah. closer to Canada, the New York City. And there uh, I began to explore all these topics further. So I, I wrote something on popular music. I wrote something on this one artist that challenged the stories that the Egyptian government was telling. Uh-huh. I wrote something on uh, Muslim preachers. And when it came time for the dissertation, that would eventually, through many revisions, <laughs> become this book later on. I was looking for a common thread and that thread became cassettes and then that's when I really set
1: out to um, explore this further and and return back to Egypt to do so. When did you make the decision to um, focus on cassettes? Where were you at in that process? It sounds like you were writing and working for a while before you came to that. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So those papers were just kind of seminar papers for particular classes. So like a class on um, Islamic oral culture, a class Mm -hmm. on Middle East soundscapes, a class on Middle East politics. Yeah. And when I saw that that thread was cassettes at the time, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a history of cassette technology. But then when Uh I went to Egypt and I started reading all these popular magazines, which were almost like a cross for uh, listeners in the US between something like newsweek and people or something Uh like that um i started seeing cassettes in all these different places like cassettes Uh and reports on black markets cassettes and reports on mass migration in the 70s and 80s and it was at that point that i thought this is not a history of cassette technology this is a history of egypt through Uh the window of its cassette culture then that's
1: cool man and you know the arab spring egyptian revolution these things were also there was so much about, like, social media in this. And later, I think it turned out to be, like, way overly simple, the initial the initial narrative. But I just wondered, like, did you immediately have reaction to that kind of media and revolution take on things? Yes.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because there was, there was so much writing that was coming out at the time. When I was in Cairo, also in yeah. the square, personally witnessing things, and you would have people, especially in Western media outlets, calling what was happening in Egypt a Facebook revolution, a Twitter revolution. and So you have social media being um, so overstated, its influence, and also very romanticized. I mean, one example of this is Mubarak and the Egyptian government, they actually shut down the internet in the course of those protests. And the protests continue to grow. More and more people turn out. (laughs) So without Twitter, it's not like people weren't turning Uh, out in the streets and putting their bodies, (laughs) their lives on the line. And so that's something that I also wanted to push back on in the case of this book. Because when it comes to the Middle East, like so often the only media that matters is the most recent media, social Mm -hmm. media. So I wanted to question kind of the, the newness of this new media. Yeah. look at an earlier time in many ways cassettes were the internet before the internet i see the yeah. internet as like an iteration of the cassette tape going back decades
1: right yeah you know, it's totally fascinating and we're, we're going to get into that in a, in a couple different ways i had a, i had a random question for you have you ever looked at um the sociologist daniel Lerner's studies of radio adoption in the middle east have you ever bumped into these no Oh, I mean, he was, I would just, yeah, we, it would be fun to take a look at it with you t- together at some point. Cause I think they they were a product of that BASR, like social research, uh, place at columbia and it's very trapped up in modernization studies mm. you know it's all about like i think it's called the decline of convention like traditional society or some shit like that right <laughs> which is like what you'd get from these mid-century modernist kind of guys but i also think there's like interesting empirical work they're up to like actually looking at it but that, that's a long way to set up tell me a bit about radio there because you you talk about like there was this earlier mono of radio where it seemed like it could have been I don't know what word to hear use here, man, like democratizing or it could have been a more open thing, but it closes down pretty fast.
0: Yeah. So something that is important in the case of radio when it comes to Egypt is that radio had been state controlled since the 1930s. So very early on, you would have individuals operating their own radio stations, but then due to the limitations of the technology at that point, they would reach listeners only within their immediate vicinity. The -hmm. audiences were quite limited. The Egyptian government steps in, takes control of the radio then in the early to mid-1930s. And then by the time of the period I'm looking at, in the 70s and 80s going forward, we actually have... Different. This is going to sound very Orwellian, but different committees operating within state-controlled Egyptian radio, screening everything. So we have a text committee where artists wow. would bring the lyrics to a song to this committee. They would review it. And then if they allowed it to go forward, people would end up recording it. The recording would then go to a listening committee. These were the titles oh, wow. of the actual committee. They uh-huh. would listen to the recording. <laughs> If they advanced it, this is a very small number that are making it through these two committees, it would end up with a radio station. The radio station would then decide if it wanted to permit it, and then it would be broadcast to people in Egypt and beyond. So you have a very, very minuscule pool of elite artists who are actually reaching a mass audience. And of course, cassette tapes, they upend all of this. Because we'll any, anyone that. can record their voice and reach a mass audience then.
1: Never say that artists don't employ people, I guess, in that circuit. If there's all these committees, I mean, there's there's money moving for uh, suppression, I guess. Is that I mean, some, some like? of
0: these artists, to that point, sat on these committees and I censored see. other artists. <laughs> so artists that were actually profiting off of state-controlled right. radio, when cassettes come about, all of a sudden they're calling for greater censorship because yeah. they're losing out financially. To all of these upstart artists who are, you know, quote, unquote, not qualified wow. to be able to, to reach people.
1: Monopolies, man. So, I mean, you have a neat section in the intro that deals with the issue of sources. So, I mean, like, it's such a, you're, it's one of these things. I, I recently had a historian, Mia Bay, who wrote Traveling Black. And she she mm. follows black people across different transit modes. It hasn't been published yet, but the, issue, the episode's coming. And you're doing something similar, right? You're following a technology. You're not following a, a people or a population across technologies. You're following this this technology through all these different spaces of culture, right? So, how did you think about sources and how to get your stories?
0: Yeah. So the idea of sources and, and archives were, were really important. I would say in the case of this project, because when it comes to Egypt, the period I'm looking at, people do not have access to the Egyptian national archives. So one of the things that I had to do in this book is to really try to write a history of Egypt without its national archives. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I had to rely upon a lot of different materials like films, memoirs, social media posts, actual cassette recordings, the jackets Mm -hmm. that were encasing those cassettes, cassette catalogs personal photographs that once were in family albums that disintegrated in the 70s, ended up in garbage bags and paper markets in the 2000s when I was doing (laughs) this work, those popular magazines, oral interviews. And so basically all these things in my mind kind of came together to um, construct what I call Egypt's shadow archive. So -hmm. these materials that exist in the shadow of the inaccessible national archives that provide us with a really vibrant picture of the past, as opposed to what a select number of people deemed worthy of conserving, and yeah. then continue to police in the present, because historical research in Egypt is a matter of national security. I'm sure and, that's true. And unless we look beyond the National Archives, we end up ceding control and understanding of the past to people that are actively trying to accomplish that. And so that yeah. was also one of the the objectives um, in the in the yeah, book, yeah. in the story.
1: Well, you know, and I mean, the the Egyptian context is fascinating and it really draws out this issue. But I actually think the problem of like technology and an adoption and use and how we study that is pretty deep, too, right? So, like, you know, if, if I'm thinking about this with computers right now in like the 80s and 90s, I mean, we have certain we have the histories of the technologies like in your story, right? But like how technology adoption actually looked in middle class and other kinds of households is much harder to get at, right? And so I I actually thought your book was kind of cool methodologically in that way too, you know? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do is look beyond the invention of technologies, two yeah. technologies in action. So like yeah. when it comes to cassette technology, okay, we have this guy, Lou Audens and Phillips. they introduced the first compact cassette. This happens in 63. It's a breakthrough. It's smaller, cheaper, easier to use than the reel-to-reel recorder. And that's usually like the entire story yeah. of cassette technology. That right. was a starting point for the yeah. story. Like what happens after this exists? Because it ends up having an impact with its users that Lou Audens never could have oh, imagined no. or no. oh, envisioned. Right. <laughs> and if yeah. we look if we look beyond the invention of these things to so like how these things are operating in action, yeah. all of a sudden the history of technology it's it's a global field.
1: Yeah, like it, it, affects it just everybody, explodes right? the boundaries yeah, exactly. of it. Amen. Amen, man. Um and the book you write in focusing on the social life of a single mass medium, this book presents a panoramic history of the modern nation through the lens of an everyday technology. And then you organize each of the chapters around one of six themes, consumption, law, taste, circulation, history, and archives. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, you could have done a chronological story and there is some chronolo- chronology. I'm not, you're not like, I don't know, James Joyce here in Finnegan's <laughs> Wake. I mean, it's not jumping all over the place, right? I mean, it moves through time, but you're also doing these kind of thematic structures. And I, I wondered like, you know, why did you choose to structure of the book in that way? It was cool
0: yeah thank you i almost envisioned the book actually as a mixtape like yes each, you're each, right about that each yeah. chapter <laughs> in my head like when i was kind of structuring this is oh, is almost man. like a track and that's why they're thematic in nature and the first the first two chapters or tracks it's all about like how did cassette culture come to be in egypt what is, what is yeah. the advent what is the starting point for this story and then the four chapters that follow are all about the impact of mm-hmm. the technology and its users so we have that bit. Be- when it comes to taste, that's not like tasting food. That's <laughs> like public yeah, yeah, taste yeah. Yeah, 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 and yeah, question yeah. of that. So we have, <laughs> that's on, that's on the creation of culture. Uh-huh. The next one is on how culture moves. And then that chapter on, um, history is about what happens when these two things collide, like the circulatory potential and the creative power of cassette technology. What happens when they converge in the case of one artist who challenges the government stories? And then that final bit on archives is like, what remains of cassette culture in Egypt? So this was a story that I didn't want to tell chronologically. Like it moves across decades. And I really wanted to, you know, dive into these bigger ideas and think about like, how can media technologies more broadly writ large outside Uh of Egypt, outside of Middle East studies? How can they tell? larger stories how can they lead us to rethink the histories of nations how could we do more with media history is yeah something that i wanted to do in this book
1: can you say a bit about how you think about causality in technology because it's in a way it's about the effects of like the adoption of technology or something like that and you're really in, in the whole story we're going to get into it here in a second is about the power of the people right is a, is about of the masses um and and so, yeah, like, how do you think about like, you know, determinism and like the role of technology in the picture?
0: Yeah, really against technological determinism because <laughs> yeah, right? we, we see a lot of that also in, in the Arab Spring and in uh, social media. Yeah, like, just harkening right. back to that, where we had, you know, like the Facebook brought down the Egyptian government and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. And so, something that I'm really careful of, uh, even in the course of this research, but in the writing up of it also, is to point out like cassettes don't do anything on their own, they're objects. They don't have their own agency. So it's how are people wielding them and using them to different ends? Mm -hmm. Because in many cases, we also have state-sanctioned artists who are taking Uh, advantage of cassette tapes too. Like everything appears on these cassette recordings. We have those state-sanctioned voices. We have Madonna. We have the Beatles. We have Muslim preachers. We have Egyptian popular music, hip hop, jazz, personal messages. All of this stuff ends up on these recordings because people are uh, harnessing them for different purposes.
1: Yeah, that's right, man. I got to say, with the mixtape thing, you briefly took me back to, like, my first girlfriend's there for a second. <laughs> so, like, there was a there was a bit of a trip. Uh, so, you know, you're writing this book, as you well know, for, like, audiences that probably don't know a lot about the recent history of Egypt... So like, what did you find necessary to kind of like get on the table to kind of like tell the story you wanted to tell about what was happening in Egypt and how cassettes fit in that, those changes?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the, the fun things going back to your mention of your first girlfriend is that a lot of people know and have dealt with and have used cassette technology in their lives. Perhaps with the exception of my students where I'm like, this is a cassette tape. <laughs> this was like yeah. social media about decades right. before. So we have this nostalgic element and this familiarity with cassette tapes, but we have this very different context in the case of Egypt. So when I'm introducing that, I mean, some important things there is like, this is a a major moment in Egypt's modern history that's often only like a few sentences when it comes to works on the Arab Spring and on those demonstrations. So I wanted to take something that's often like a footnote in those books and make it the central subject of the study and when mm-hmm. it comes to this period the 70 80s moments in particular this is something that's often kind of approached through people writing on very big momentous events yeah. things like the 1973 war in egypt yeah we also have like how did authoritarian regimes come to be and, and strengthen themselves oh, and yeah. consolidate authority <laughs> yeah, and then we yeah. have islam religion this is right. the moment of the islamic revival in the middle east I wanted to like flip the script on all those things. So I wanted to look at mundane things, Mm -hmm. things like music. I wanted to look at people challenging these regimes rather than the people responsible for creating them. And then I wanted to really listen beyond Islam, beyond religion. Think about other sounds, because they were only a fraction of the things circulating in Egypt's soundscape. And it's at this point in time where we also have like Egypt's economic opening, it's called, Mm -hmm. where we have this shift from state-sponsored socialism to Western open-door capitalism. This is also the moment of the oil boom. And Mm -hmm. one of the outcomes of this is we have Egyptians going all across the Middle East to work abroad, earn higher wages, return back home. And one of the things they return with is the dual cassette player. (laughs) And so the oil boom is actually in part responsible for the advent of cassette culture in Egypt. So we have this very kind of vibrant moment that I wanted to dive into through the window
1: then of cassette technology. That's cool, man. Um, You talk about um, Sadat plays a role in this this moment, this opening, right? This is what he's the president of Egypt. That's right. He is, and
0: he's the architect of the opening.
1: Okay. So you talk about how adoption of cassette tapes, I quote, coincided with the creation of a wider culture of consumption under Sadat. So um and and quote there, what do you what do you mean by that and it spell, start to spell out a little bit more about like the role of this in consumerism and such.
0: Sure. So in the aftermath of that 73 war, we have Sadat announced the Infitah, this economic opening, and this also coincides with that oil boom. So we have an unprecedented number Of Egyptians who become economic migrants, who go to places like Libya, Iraq, the Gulf more broadly, go work over there, earn higher wages, send some of that money back home, but also return home with things, with objects. Mm -hmm. And then this engenders really this broader culture of mass consumption, where we Mm -hmm. also have foreign funding coming in from the West. We have all these international companies, Samsung, Toshiba, Sony. They all start to have licensed agents in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, all of a sudden, this idea of the modern home, what Mm -hmm. it means for a home to be modern, is less about the occupants of that home and their education and more about the objects Mm -hmm. in that home. So we have this thing that's happening where it's almost like... uh, the materialization of modernity or what it means to be modern yep. more people yep. are buying more things than ever before and one of the things they are buying the most are cassette players hmm. and cassette tapes so these two things are happening simultaneously cassette culture is taking off at the same exact moment that mass consumer culture is taking off as well
1: hmm. that's so cool man and one of the neat things you do in that um in that chapter is you unpack as in a kind of analytical way to photograph so Tell us about the photograph and you know how did you find it and what do you see in it?
0: Yeah, so th- I so I love this. So this is this is why when I'm on social media and I have like my wife looking over my shoulder or my students and they think I'm not working, I'm working. This is all of <laughs> research. Every minute I spend on Facebook is for research purposes, <laughs> naturally.
1: Oh, I like where this is going. And so so
0: there's a number of Facebook groups, um, Egyptian Facebook groups where we have oh. thousands of photographs from all different time periods. And uh? there's a lot of nostalgia behind these different images and the comments on them. And so I'm on one of these pages one day, and I find this image of these uh, three guys basically posing with a cassette radio, almost as if they were in a studio. It's very formal in nature, and the only object is this cassette radio, one of the guy's laps, two other people behind him, hands on the shoulder. And so Amazing. I'm wondering like, what is going on with this image? Because the caption for it is like, soon the iPhone 6 will become as antiquated as this cassette radio. Yeah, yeah, That was, That was what right. it was put up as. <laughs> and so I was like, what is going on here? Who are these people? Where was yeah. this photo taken? Because none of this information is, is available on the image mm-hmm. or, or sure. in the caption for sure. it. So then someone comments, on this photo, oh, I actually knew those guys. And I was like, what? Shit. So I have to reach out to this person naturally, send them yeah. a completely blind Facebook message. And they're like, oh yeah, that was a relative who had gone to Iraq. He had worked in this small village during that 70s, 80s major oil boom migration moment. And his prized purchase was a cassette radio. And he was so proud of this purchase that he went with his friends to this portrait studio where we have wow. one of those big like box cameras, throw the curtain over your head, like snap yeah, the light yeah, bulb yeah, camera. Yeah. Takes this picture of them posing with the cassette radio with which he then returns to Egypt because this object, it also indexed and served as evidence of one's upward social and economic sure. mobility, of one's new purchasing power. Right.
1: Yeah. And so
0: when people like went abroad during this moment, Egyptians bought always two things, or they strove to. One was an electric fan, and one was the cassette radio. (laughs) And so this is like where the story begins, the story of mass migration, the story of mass consumer culture, the story of Egyptians traveling to all these places and then returning to Egypt with these objects. And that photo kind of encapsulated... All of that, this image appears, you know, like 40 years later. That was yeah. an image in someone's probably family album going back to the 70s. Yeah.
1: Well, man, if you're going to buy something, a box fan and a cassette player sounds pretty good to me, actually, is like, starting uh, <laughs> objects. Yes. Uh, so then you know, in the next chapter, you turn to uh, smuggling. I mean, smuggling and, and cassette tapes, and this is—I also thought this was really neat on a, on a kind of source base or method base, just because you're mining like crime reports and other kinds of stuff. How did how did you get onto this, and uh, why are people smuggling cassette tapes so much?
0: Yeah, so I mean, great question. In the case of smuggling and also um, theft, these are kind of two threads that I look at, and and what I like to call the criminal biography of cassette technology. And this really came to my attention because I was reading these popular magazines and I basically, these magazines were weekly and I read every issue over the course of 20 years, two different magazines, which was a lot of issues. I have like an iPhoto library of over 30,000 images and those are just the relevant images to this book. And so one of the things I saw in these magazines that I never knew about before looking at them were like all of these sad criminals, like in quotes, posing with like a dozen cassette radios like often in handcuffs or very melancholic in nature. And it was in the crime of the week section of (laughs) these periodicals. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, what are all these cassette radios doing with this one individual? And so then I started reading these stories and they were written almost like, uh, like detective stories about how the police... You know, were so brilliant and they worked together seamlessly. Oh, Their yeah. coordination was perfect, and then they apprehended this dangerous criminal who had stolen twenty cassette radios, and he was no longer a threat to society. You know, kudos to the police pat us theme. on the shoulder. <laughs> and so these stories, they were glorifying the security sector yeah. in Egypt. But yeah. one of the things that they inadvertently end up doing is revealing this thriving black market. for cassette technology because no one dude needs 20 cassette radios. And so these individuals are stealing all these objects because they're then hawking them and selling them. So these these stories that are supposed to glorify the police actually end up revealing the shortcomings of policing. And so we have cassette radios being stolen from cars, homes, stores. But then we also have people smuggling the technology across Egypt's national borders. So smuggling in the case of uh, putting it in suitcases and hoping that customs don't find them, uh, bringing them aboard ships from places as far away as Europe, across the Mediterranean, and you have people who are actually like suitcase traders, is the term in Arabic, that are returning with a ton of objects with the sole intention of then selling them, but they end up like announcing them as, oh, they're gifts to family members, or they're all for me. And then they end up like opening a boutique or something like that. And cassette technology, unlike, let's say, a television set or other objects, really lends itself to this because it's incredibly small. Like Mm -hmm. tapes can fit in your pocket, but players could even fit in a bag. And this becomes very, very difficult for authorities to police and becomes very problematic, especially when cassette recordings are being smuggled out of Egypt with voices that the government then doesn't want to be heard
1: so how did how did you think use and adoption of tastes end up um reshaping taste and we are talking about like preferences here rather than uh like the taste buds in our mouths. How how does it end up reshaping things?
0: Yes, it it did not make everyone like uh, less inclined to eat raisins or something like that. Yes, and so in terms of public taste and like these sensibilities, I mean something to think about here is like what what is the purpose of culture? What is the objective of culture? And from the the perspective of the Egyptian government, it's really all about enlightening, educating, and making model citizens. And so prior to the advent of this cassette culture, and even even throughout, we have all these different initiatives from state-controlled radio that we talked about Mm to even this initiative called Public Culture, which is not an idea. It's like a state-engineered program that was charged with erasing what the government called cultural illiteracy in Egypt. So -hmm. we have the government setting up culture centers clubs traveling caravans that would like go out into the egyptian countryside and stage shakespearean plays to like uplift and enlighten the masses with cassette technology due to its affordability its uh, ability to circulate but its usability first and foremost anyone can create culture for the first time ever this is not something social media does this is something cassette technology does Going back to the 70s. So all of a sudden, anyone becomes a cultural producer instead of a consumer. And then this sparks tremendous anxiety on the part of local authorities who can all of a sudden no longer control what Egyptian culture means Mm -hmm. and what it comprises. And then this inspires this whole discussion around the contamination of taste, the end mm-hmm. of Egyptian culture, the downfall of music. Oh man. Because all of a sudden you have these working class people who are no longer just listening to what others choose for them to listen to. They yeah. are recording themselves, creating entire new genres, and uh, it creates this this panic, yeah. much like we even see now. And the case of there's this thing called Mahraganat music in Egypt took Hmm. off after the Arab Spring was made by primarily working class Egyptians through the Internet and then traveled Mm -hmm. on flash drives. None of that stuff is new. This was all happening decades earlier with popular music uh, and cassette tapes in the 70s.
1: That's hilarious, man. I didn't know that like people worried about media uh, ruining culture before TikTok. That's (laughs) news to me.
0: (laughs) There's an older story there. And you also, you also, by the way, you have people saying things like, the content that were on some of these cassettes were more dangerous than cocaine. Uh These are statements people are saying back in the 70s. Uh And then going with this new musical genre, like only over the past few years, you have people saying, oh, that genre is more dangerous than COVID. And so all of this language, it's like just being recycled
1: over the years.
0: Culture mm-hmm. is always in a state of perpetual degradation.
1: <laughs> yes, and crisis. I mean, cultural yes. pessimists have been around forever, right? And like, so we haven't fallen off a cliff yet, but the meme remains, so uh, yes. we'll see. Uh, so, you know, I, I gathered from your intro that if people have ri- written about cassettes before in Egypt, it's, it's often focused on religion and sermons. I just wondered, that made me wonder just like, If we have any sense and i can imagine this would be pretty hard of like what percentages different genres and forms like took up of the overall mix and whether it's different than the states or place you know europe or whatever
0: sure i mean in terms of that content i think that's absolutely correct so a lot a few people when they have written on cassettes if they've given any attention to the technology it's often been in the case of islamic sounds and that's something true with the study of sound even more broadly in the case mm-hmm. of the Middle East. So we have a, a wonderful book uh, called The Ethical Soundscape, written by Charles Hirschkind, who's an anthropologist, who goes to Cairo and looks at Islamic sermons and how yeah. they were circulating, creating these counterpublics, challenging these um, official discourses of religion. We also have a case study that may be familiar to some listeners. We have the 79 Iranian Revolution, Khomeini recording on cassette tapes, those cassette tapes making their way back to Iran, around Iran, playing a part in challenging uh, the Shah's government. Huh. In the case of what's actually on cassettes though in Egypt, Islamic sounds and sermons are only a fraction, a tiny fraction of uh-huh. the material that's circulating. And so someone may be like in a cab in the 70s or 80s, even into the 90s and early 2000s, because cassettes have a very long life in Egypt. They're not replaced yeah, by sure. CDs or something like that. Yeah, People could be listening to an Islamic sermon, then they listen to Michael Jackson, Then they listen to the Beatles. Then they listen to, you know, Egyptian popular music. Then they listen to a singer from the Gulf. Then they listen to a recording that they made to a lover or something.
1: Like people
0: were listening to all of these things. So I wanted to explode this idea that basically equates acoustic culture in Egypt and in the Middle East, more broadly, with Islam. There's
1: much more going on there that I wanted to unpack. No, I totally agree that you should. And I. You know, the other thing is that I feel like the things I bumped into that talk about that like fail to capture how much of that goes on in the States too. I mean, you know, Christian, Catholics, Protestants, uh, woo-woo, tantric yoga folks. Like, you know, there's all these different like spiritual people are using cassettes and the taste, tapes or uh, cassettes to get ideas around from probably the 70s forward or whenever, right? So- I mean, I don't know. There's just this weird, like, exceptionalism about it in, in the Middle East where it's like they're using it for religious purposes. And it's like, like, look at your neighbor and their, like, weird collection of woo-woo stuff that they hide, from, maybe hide from you and you don't know it. You know, I don't yeah. know. Yeah,
0: this this idea of, like, there's some weird exceptionalism there, that could be said about, like, uh, everything, like, everyone ever thought <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> about the Middle East, including yeah. including cassette culture, though. Yeah. And of course, like you have people that are traveling, like from Egypt to the U.S., bringing their tapes there. So these tapes are moving beyond borders, and then vice versa; they're traveling everywhere. Like cassette culture is a global culture, yeah. And so that is evident also in the case that things are list. People are listening to in Egypt. Like I have a tape behind me right uh, now. If people oh, yeah, can like, see the video, yeah. where there's there's a soundtrack to a Bollywood movie that mm-hmm. has been recorded over with Quranic recitation. And so like we have all yeah. of these sounds that are uh, moving about and being heard.
1: Yeah, that's cool, man. And that, that, that does connect to the next chapter I wanted to talk to you about, which is like copying culture. So like, you know, obviously a lot of this focuses on piracy, you know, which makes sense. That was a famous problem with cassettes everywhere. But, but it goes a lot broader than that. So like, what do we know about copying sounds?
0: Yeah, so piracy, I mean, one of the things that happens with cassettes in Egypt is it fundamentally and, and radically changes the circulation of culture. And so piracy, for the first time, becomes a popular practice as mm-hmm. a result of cassette tapes. And we have all these different forms of piracy that play out in Egypt that I try to map out. So we have like personal piracy that people are yep. familiar with, that many of us probably even committed ourselves. And yeah. so we have like people taking a Beethoven tape And recording over it with the singer that was considered to be incredibly vulgar in Egypt, Uh, we have that Bollywood tape becoming Quranic recitation. Like no one was immune to being erased and replaced when it came to these recordings. We also have state piracy. This was very interesting (laughs) that that I encountered for the first time in these magazines, where we have employees for state-controlled Egyptian radio that are recording radio broadcasts illegally onto cassette tapes and then selling the cassette tapes to people in and outside of Egypt. And then we have international piracy where we have sounds that are being produced in Egypt that are being pirated at a distance from it. Like we have this very famous example. I'll just share like one vignette where we have this religious authority Travel from Egypt to the U.S. to recite the Quran in Congress. And he actually meets with Jimmy Carter, who's president at the time. Carter says, oh, I really love your voice. This guy says, oh, wonderful. I'll send you some tapes when I get back to Egypt. He gets on a flight from D.C. to Chicago, picks up a copy of the Chicago Tribune and sees that his tapes are for sale in the U.S. already.
1: unbeknownst to him
0: because they're being pirated.
1: And so we have
0: have all these steps to try to bring an end to piracy. Like we have the creation of the cassette police. This is an actual police unit in Egypt Hmm. that is supposed to go around and identify these fraudulent tapes when they receive a phone call basically from people who dialed the number that was also put on uh, cassette jackets. Like mm. if this tape is fraudulent because you know, cause the color of the tape is blue and it's supposed to be green or something like that, call the cassette police. And they like, will rush to wow. you. This obviously <laughs> failed like spectacularly. Yeah. And so you also have people like writing other things on cassette jackets. One of the best ones that I found was actually for um, like this Islamic recording where you have this label say like, If if, like if this tape is fraudulent or if you yourself commit cassette piracy, this actually runs against the tenets of Islam. And by the way, proceeds from this tape are going towards supporting Egyptian orphans. So you also (laughs) would be robbing from them. And so you have these companies that are trying to like turn consumers into informants. Yeah. Because they are losing out financially to all these people pirating tapes. And this mm-hmm. proves impossible to, to stop, globally, more broadly. Piracy is just taking off
1: everywhere, in and outside of Egypt. Um, this is the first time I had to do this. I'm gonna go grab a source over here, though. Give me one second. Okay. All right. Don't usually have show and tell of any sort. So, um, you have a chapter called uh, Subverting that, among other things, examines this song Nixon Baba or Father Nixon. Yes. So tell us about Nixon Baba.
0: OK, so this is this is maybe my favorite part of the book. So this chapter revolves around uh, this event, where we have Nixon travel to Egypt in the summer of 74 during the throes of Watergate. And this is part of this broader tour for peace in the Middle East. So we have him go to Egypt. Uh, Saudi Arabia, elsewhere, and basically the Egyptian government welcomes Nixon with open arms. So they like shut down the airport, they roll out an actual red carpet for him. Sadat greets him, an honor guard like fires off this gun salute. They get into this jet black convertible, and then they travel as part of this caravan of 200 vehicles that goes throughout the streets of Cairo and arrives at this palace. And they're moving down like these roadways that had just been straightened by bulldozers for the sole purpose of this visit. They're passing under these archways that were erected solely to welcome Nixon. And you have people shouting things like, welcome Nixon, long live Nixon, we trust Nixon. And then all of this fanfare inspires this song called Nixon Baba, or Father Nixon, which is this poem that's penned by this guy, Ahmed Fuad Nigam, and is then set to song by this other individual, Sheikh Imam who was blind and was an oud player. And in this song, they basically completely undermine the official story of the visit as told by the Egyptian government. Mm-hmm. And so they do this in a few different ways. Like Sheikh Hamam, he alludes to Nixon's woes back in the US. He talks about his frail state. He discusses the possibility of him being no longer around. He says he's not gonna greet Nixon out of ignorance. And then he compares his visit in egypt to two different things so one of them is um it's called the czar in arabic it's like a ceremony for excising spirits mm-hmm. and he basically says that sadat the egyptian president is like the leader of this ceremony he also refers to him as the devil and then he talks about all the egyptian government officials being convulsing whores and marching <laughs> yeah. along in lines during this parade he also right. then compares it to a wedding procession In which nixon plays the part of a groom that no one wanted to marry that someone (laughs) married as a last resort i mean not wrong (laughs) and when when he's when he's singing this by the way in the cassette recordings that continue to exist to this day and if some of them have made their way online you could hear them on youtube in places and mam actually spits on nixon in the recordings and so this this track is traveling on non-commercial cassettes Like their songs more broadly were never sold on tapes released by official recording labels. They were never available in stores. They were never sold at kiosks. They were copied and moved about through private parties where Mm -hmm. people would go to their apartment, they would go to another apartment, invite them over to their living room, record them on a cassette player, pirate the tape, distribute it amongst everyone. Or they were recorded at political protests where they would perform prior to the police arriving and arresting them and imprisoning Uh them multiple Uh times and shutting down those events. And through that circulation then, like we have the story that Sadat is trying to tell completely being destroyed. Mm -hmm. And some of the interesting things about that is like Sadat and his later... Uh, biography, when he's reflecting on Nixon's visit, because Nixon leaves Egypt and resigns two months later, okay. before <laughs> before Nixon because really of Watergate. Good, right? So <laughs> yeah. so Nixon's like, "Thank you, Sadat, for this lavish welcome. I will be sure to have you to the White House." Except Nixon's no longer in the White House two months later right. because of Watergate. Right. So when Sadat is looking back on this event that he spent so much time on and I so bet. much money in planning and his in his memoir it gets one sentence it is nixon came to egypt and his visit preceded a terrible whirlpool of political turmoil in the us and so he's actively (laughs) trying to forget but this song won't let him forget because it continues to circulate and it's revived all the way up to the arab spring another photograph on social media last thing i'll say here is we have an image that was one of the official images, part of the official story of the visit, where we have Nixon and Sadat and the jet black Cadillac convertible moving down the streets with We Trust Nixon banners. And the caption for the photograph on Facebook, this was p- uploaded a couple within the past year or two, says, American President Richard Nixon's visit to Egypt in 74, for which Sheikh Imam sang, welcome, Father Nixon. <laughs> and so here we have official image but this unofficial soundtrack has become the official wow. anthem and the enduring memory of that. event. Wow. Uh,
1: I just thought I would read the first verse because I, I feel like this is something worth giving people a taste of. So it's welcome, Father. This is the English translation, obviously. Welcome, Father Nixon. Oh, you Watergate. They have honored your arrival, the Sultans of beans and oil. They have rolled out the red carpet for you from Tin to Mecca. And from there, you will pass through Acre, or is it Acre? Which means Acre, do, the imp- yeah. do the impossible. And they'll say you made the pilgrimage. Round and round, the never-ending mulud goes, O family of the prophet, give your bless us your blessings. It doesn't sound like a very happy... Uh, Take on uh, these things, huh?
0: No, and it's it's so it's so it's like dripping in sarcasm, yes, and biting criticism. And so many of those words have double meanings. And Mm -hmm. it also has a certain cadence. Like even the beginning of the song in Arabic, it's uh shraftial baba, yabata al water gate, amalulek iwausima, salatin al fulwazeit, farzulik osa sikka, marrasatina la mecca, wahana tenzel alaaka wabulu lek ha gate. And then it goes on and continues. So that's we have wonderful. like these rhyming these rhyming yeah. couplets. And when they're performing this, they are laughing on the track, <laughs> laughing at Nixon. <laughs> and because these were recorded at private events, you hear the greater laughter because it's picking up conversations, wow, it's picking yeah. up all these jokes. I encourage everyone that's to go awesome. out
1: and listen. That's, that's awesome. I also just wanted to like do a little aside here and say um, there, there's this appendix. I was reading from the appendix where you have some songs and uh poems and uh you know i the first one a little bit up a little bit down it reminded me uh of this old nick cave song i love called from her to eternity of course nick cave makes it real nasty and it gets it gets weird because it's nick cave but i don't know there's this there's this like guy downstairs and there's this beautiful woman upstairs who he's drawn to uh or maybe it's the other way around anyway it's just a it's very lovely little uh Poem or song. So, what are there others in the appendix that you really liked? I was really glad you included them.
0: Yeah. So the the guy that sings that song also um sings one other that that's in the book too. His name was Ahmed Adweya, and he was a, a pioneer of popular music in Egypt, hmm. which is this genre where we have people singing about everyday things in Egyptian colloquial Arabic. Like so, hmm. for those of you like may not know out there we basically have two different registers of arabic we have modern standard arabic which is kind of like shakespearean english
1: okay. and then
0: we have dialects in all these countries which is like the english that you and Lee are like talking in right yeah. now for the podcast right. so most people prior to this performed in modern standard arabic which is a bit mm-hmm. disconnected from people's like lived realities and the language they're used to and Adawiya then is singing in like all these everyday phrases about everyday stuff like he has mm-hmm. a song about traffic That went massively viral on (laughs) cassettes. He has this song about like looking this like woman like up and down, but at the same time, the song could also be like a commentary on class and Mm. like growing divisions between the haves and the have-nots in Egypt during this period. And hmm. so you have, of course, critics saying, hell no. He's like looking this woman up and down. This is entirely unacceptable. Right. And then you have people being like, oh, this is actually an astute commentary on Egypt's economic <laughs> right, opening, right, right. which was just infuriating people further. And then you even have Adhweya who's asked about this. Like, what were you singing about? And he's like, you know, stay silent. Lots <laughs> <Let's> people like <laughs> assume assume either one. Right, and so right. those are that's one of the artists who's at the center of... Of uh, this idea of the vulgar soundscape and like Mm -hmm. the end of culture. But something to just note there with him too is like even people who were state sanctioned singers were so well aware of his popularity that at one point there's another photo in the book where they tried to co opt him, like Mm -hmm. two of the most important singers or or kind of ruling regime endorsed singers in Egypt's history, where they would kind of criticize him publicly. But then he's performing at this hotel in London and one sends the other there, they were co-founders of a record label, to basically try to like get him over to their label. And one of the ways they tried to do that is this singer ends up singing one of Adweya's songs. He takes the stage with him. And this person in the audience snaps a photograph of it. That photograph makes its way back to Egypt and is published mm. in one of those popular periodicals. And in response mm. to that image, this is in the 70s. The guy comes out and says, I was never there. That never happened. <laughs> and so we have like, this is something I tell students like this is like fake news before fake right. news on social media. And yeah. so, you know, cassettes enable individuals like Adawiya, like Sheikh Imam and so many others um, to reach a mass audience for the first time ever, whereas mm-hmm. they it would not have been possible for them to do that without this technology.
1: So in the final uh, substantive chapter, you you um, look at these cassette collections that still exist today and try to mine them. So where'd you go? Who would you talk to? And what do you think these collections kind of have to teach us?
0: Yeah, so th- this is all about like what remains of Egypt's cassette culture. So, I mean, one of the places that I went was this uh, electronic shop that used mm-hmm. to be a cassette label. And so when I went in like 2015, 16, Uh, It was selling like television remotes, um, Mm -hmm. extension cords. But then one of the entire walls of this little kiosk is cassette tapes, floor to ceiling. Many of those tapes have not made their way online. They are not preserved in any official repository or informal archive. They just continue to kind of linger in dust in this one kiosk. I mean, another example of this is I went to this um, Islamic Institute for Research where I was basically saying like, how did censorship work in the 70s and 80s? This is the one part that's kind of more on Islamic sounds. And they said, oh, censorship worked seamlessly. Like we were able to control everything and who spoke in the name of Islam. And then I went to like um, primarily a record store and this area is Zemelec, this more upscale area in Cairo. And there were hundreds of cassette tapes there. And one of them was this collection, came from a single apartment in Cairo. And like 80% of the tapes did not have stamps of approval from that institute. Mm. And so clearly something different was happening in reality <laughs> than yeah. opposed to in theory, or, or mm-hmm. the, the image that they were trying to lend. Um, so through kind of accessing these different collections, I think one of the things it raises is like, what makes its way into a library? What is excluded from that? And in excluding some things, what stories about the past do we foreclose? Mm-hmm. Like what? What things can we not tell? Because yeah. so often things that are preserved in archives, well, one, they're primarily texts or documents. Yeah. Um, but all of these materials, like they, they make a very different portrayal of the past possible. And so that mm-hmm. that was something that I was trying to trying to think through. At the same yeah. time, that we also have a cassette revival in yeah, the U.S.
1: Yeah. and right.
0: in other places.
1: Yeah, they're big again.
0: Yeah, I mean Taylor Swift. Everyone reissuing stuff on cassettes. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, so you, one of the things you try to do in the in in the last section of the book is you know talk to a fellow um, Middle Eastern studies folks about you know some suggestions for roads forward with research. And I guess I should say, I mean, you do. Is it right? You come from like that? Is your home really? Is kind of Middle Eastern studies. Um, but you also draw on all these other fields, right? Sound studies and STSE type stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really draw on a lot of stuff. So yeah, I mean, what did you want to say to your home field with this book?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, honestly, like that I tried to do in this book is to to write something that was also by no means like solely for scholars or even like Middle Eastern scholars. Like I wanted to craft something that was engaging and to shed like a new light on something that people thought they knew like one Mm -hmm. of the things i'm a big proponent of like when it comes to teaching or like my own work is to take something that is very ordinary and to try to show some extraordinary side of it and so i think when it comes to this project like a few things were of a a main concern like one of them was um sound and the senses like how we think Mm -hmm. about those things like so often in the case of the middle east or other places we have almost very silent accounts of the past Which to me, like pun intended, makes no sense because like we, you know, apprehend everything (laughs) around us in the present through all of our senses. Right. And so that's something that I wanted to bring like to this story. I think also like when it comes to to mass media and popular culture to really not look at like only the most recent media. Like there's so many other media forms out there whose stories yeah. haven't been written. Like the next yeah. project I'm gonna do is gonna be a, a transnational history of record culture across huh. the Middle East. Like moving from the times of like the Ottoman Empire, we're talking like pre-World War yeah, I yeah, to yeah. the present day. And so there's videotapes, there's so much more stuff to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pop culture, like so often the focus is on artists who are like endorsed by people in positions of power that mm-hmm. are like in bed with ruling regimes, that are singing in support of the government. I mean, think like country music post 9-11 in the US or something. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I wanted to look at people that were challenging authorities mm-hmm. and, and people that paid the price for doing that. And so that's something yeah. that I wanted to like honor and bring to the fore. Um, and then like technology. Like you said, like not just looking at like oh this thing was invented on this date by yeah. this engineer who was so brilliant and had the light bulb moment, and they're like predominantly male and predominantly yeah, white, yeah. and I, so like I wanted to think about like what happens when all these things go elsewhere, yeah. and all these people begin to use them, and then I, la- I, last thing last things materials oh, yeah. like how do we tell a story of a place that mm-hmm. whose whose rulers and leaders actively don't want us to do
1: so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the technology front, uh, I don't I haven't checked in on it for a while, but there used to be this series, this is like early 2010s, called something like How the World Changed Social Media. Mm. And uh instead of how social media changed the world. And it was a bunch of ethnographies of the adoption of social media in different parts, you know, all over the world. And it was just like a wonderful example of the kind of thing you're talking about, where it's like I think there's I think there is a revolution, you know, in quotation marks happening right now in technology studies where we're just we're seeing more and more studies of, um, you know, like um, Montana's study of like electricity in Mexico. I have a student looking at like satellite. Communications in Thailand. I think there's that's like something happening right now as people looking at how all these other places in the world adopt these systems.
0: Yeah. Yes, please. More of that. And Hell more, yeah. More exactly. Of, I mean, like also <laughs> in the case of the the social media changing the world or vice versa. Yeah. I mean, something even in the case of like the Middle East is if we had all of that early rhetoric about oh, like Facebook is inherently empowering or something. Oh, like yeah. something that's come about more recently is like oh. Actually, all these authoritarian regimes are all u- also using Facebook to identify protesters, uh-huh. like even with what's going on in Iran right now. And so all these things being a double edged sword and like really writing against technological determinism and then looking beyond the West.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and looking right.
0: beyond the U.S. and Europe, making it a global field of study.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you kind of is, is the next book project the, or the next project this record thing? Tell us what you're up to man now, man. Where yeah.
0: You going? So I'm I'm pumped for that project. Basically, I have like uh several thousand documents and personal correspondence from um, the gramophone record company, which hmm. ends up in Egypt during that kind of pre-World War I moment. And so it's going to begin with this- Oh, cult-
1: gramophone's like a big label, right? Like there's- Yeah, like the little
0: dog yeah. listening to the yeah, horns. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff. yeah.
1: Okay, I'm sorry, I'm flaking. Yes, of course. And yeah. so
0: look at, looking at like, how can one write like, um, like a cultural history of British colonialism yeah. in Egypt in this moment? Because we have these- unbelievable exchanges like in these yeah. letters where you have these british officials at the peak of imperialism pre world war 1 being like we want to sell records to egyptians but don't they hate dogs because our emblems a dog and it's like <laughs> no, no but like you read that cuz you're reading all this orientalist stuff right, right, written right, by right, your right. peers right and so it's going to begin with that but then it's going to move yeah. up to the present and looking at how people Uh, will actually travel to North Africa from elsewhere in the region and buy up like Egyptian culture and records Uh, to then keep in their private personal libraries.
1: Okay. So like what's going on with like record
0: revival and cultural heritage, stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting.
1: So you have like, uh, hipsters and heads heading to Egypt and like developing like a world music collection. Is that the kind of stuff you see happening But like
0: for, for themselves, Okay. Or, or even like older generations that are doing that because that uh-huh. culture carries a certain currency. But then you, you also have like, you have people that are based in Europe, DJs. Yeah.
1: People like, uh, like Habibi
0: of. Funk, other individuals that, that yeah. come to Egypt, record dive and then uh, end up reissuing songs that people never heard or at least yeah. did not hear widely, remixing them. And yeah. so like this project, it's going to move from British colonialism to the European club scene and then That's look cool at man. like record culture more, more broadly.
1: That's cool. I mean, we should maybe we should read uh one of these uh BASR studies of like uh, radios in the Middle East 20 like mid 20th century stuff because I think it would be fun to see what sociologists were doing with that earlier stuff at some point. So.
0: Yes, making the Middle East modern or something through Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think like you have to set aside that shit, you know, cuz like that is boring as hell, but I think they were actually doing some interesting research like interviewing yeah. people and stuff that would be worth examining
0: yeah i mean i think totally and i think too i I was even surprised to hear of that because there has been so little written on mass media that's not the internet or al jazeera
1: yeah when it comes to
0: (laughs) the middle east like if we look at if we look at europe or something i mean we have we have many books on something like history of radio if you look at the middle east writ large you may have two histories and i know one that's being written right now Right. I mean, I could count it on a hand. So there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done
1: still. Totally, man. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time today. I knew it would be fun. It was fun, dude. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.